Well, we retired thinking that we would travel and do all of the typical United States retirement things by a camper or mobile home, drive across the country, visit our kids, and um, that didn't work out. Basically, the Gospel of Luke in film form. If uh, a people group has a book of Luke, it can be dropped into the script, the script can be fleshed out, and a movie can be dubbed. And if they don't have any type of gospel, we can still do an oral script translation where they can see the life of Jesus on the screen, get the gospel, even though they're maybe from a tribe that has no scripture whatsoever. So. In, in their in their own language. And it's critical that it is in their own language because then, then it can be their God. Um, it's not you know, the white man's God or the, the Westerner's God. It is, in fact, my, Jesus is speaking my language. Right. It really um, has an impact on these people. Don't put any limits on God and don't limit yourself if he's calling you near or far or whatever he's asking you to do. Taking those steps of obedience um, will just open up an amazing new world of opportunity and privilege. The Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and in his name the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Amen. Lord, I do pray for Doug and Marlene, and uh, this is maybe the fifth or sixth time I've seen this video uh, as we prepared it and viewed it. And every time I'm just struck by the willingness to let go of plans, to surrender everything, to move to a difficult place, to move away from family and community and uh, it's just a beautiful picture. 
and one that we should all be inspired by. So I do pray right now that you would just bless Doug and Marlene, that you would bless the work that they do, that the Jesus film would continue to go out with power and that people would come to know Jesus through it and that uh, it would just be a powerful movement. Thank you that uh, they are a part of our family and that we get the incredible privilege of being in partnership with them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hey, so um, I was trying to figure it out this morning, and I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was 16 years ago uh, that we made a conscious decision to take missions out of our operational budget and create uh, its own budget and its own funding for it. And the reason we did it back then was because it sort of felt like missions just happened. And while Grace has had a long history of being very missional and having a, a huge impact around the world, it just sort of happened and we never really talked much about it. Um, and so by taking it out of the budget and creating its own uh, annual campaign, which is what we're starting today, it forces our hand, if you will, to talk about our partners, to talk about what we're trying to do. Uh, so today begins the Missions and Mobilization Campaign, and the goal this year is to raise $265,000 to go uh, to our partners and to advance missions at Grace. Uh, the only way that that will happen is if you all prayerfully consider what you would give. Uh, we kind of have used 1% as a good uh, benchmark, if you will, would you prayerfully considering giving 1% of your family income above your normal giving to the missions and mobilization? What we do know is if everybody at Grace uh, did the 1%, we would far exceed the $265,000. But God may stir in you to give more than that. Um, we certainly would love that. I would love to see us blow the $265,000 out of the water and open up opportunity for us to have new partnerships or to increase the level of support we have with our existing partners. So every week between now and the end of the month of December, you'll be hearing about um, our partners, what they do, how they do the, the ministries that they do, and we just want to invite you to be a part of that, okay? All right, one other announcement. December 31st, I don't know if you know this, but that would be the last day of the year. Duh. Anyway, uh, that is also a Sunday, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have baptisms on December 31st, and I cannot think of a better way to uh, end a year and begin a new year but by getting baptized. So if you've said yes to Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I just want to encourage you to take that next step of obedience and say yes to baptism. It's very easy. Uh, you just need to stop at the information counter and tell them, I want to be a part of the December 31st baptisms. We'll help you to get everything worked out. And uh, what I do know to be true is something profound happens uh, in the baptism tank. I don't really understand it. It's supernatural, um, but we know that uh, something really profound takes place. So we just encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, what a perfect, perfect time to be baptized. All right. Uh, we are in our journey through the book of Genesis. Uh, we are not very far into the book, but so far we've covered creation, a talking serpent, people living hundreds and hundreds of years, sin, murder, giants, catastrophic flood, an ark that saves humanity and animals, and that's the first nine weeks of the series. I don't know about you, but for the first time, maybe ever, I've just been kind of like amazed how wild and crazy the story is. I think because I grew up with it, you know, I always say familiarity breeds, but I've just never really stopped to think about it. Like, this is a crazy story. 
I just every week seems to get like, wow, 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 cool, great. Anyway, so uh, this week we're finishing our mini series on Noah and uh, this story is also just a little bit of a head scratcher. So stay with me uh, this morning. Before we look at the bizarre story, uh, I wanna just ask you a question. It's a question that I've been pondering uh, for the last couple weeks actually, uh, and especially over the last several days. Uh, but the question is this, what is the most important truth? What is the most important truth for us to glean from the story of Noah and the ark? This is not a rhetorical question. I really do want you to just sort of sit with it for a minute. What is it? What is the truth? What is the application? What is the point for you and I? What is the point for, for grace? What's the takeaway? What's the application? Or as I often say when I'm preaching, so What? What difference does it make to the way you love God and the way you love people? I know that you probably know this, but you can study the word of God. You can be fascinated by the word of God. You can be like totally enthralled when a preacher tells you something that you never knew before, or you never understood, but being fascinated is not enough. The word of God is intended to do surgery in your soul. The word of God is intended to bring about life change in the deepest parts of your soul. One of our core values here at Grace is life change. And I don't know if you know this, but biblical knowledge and spiritual maturity are not the same thing. So you can know a lot and still be a baby when it comes to your walk with God. Being entertained by the word is not the same thing as being transformed by the word. Right? So our mission statement here at Grace is we are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus. And that is a lifelong process that requires spiritual maturity. It requires growing up. It requires allowing the scriptures to be transformational. Application and life change go together. All right, so let me ask you the question again. What is the most important truth for us? Or if you want to make this a personal question, what is the most important truth for you to glean from the story of Noah and the ark? Grab your Bibles, journals, turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 18 through 28. I think we have about half a box left of these journals, but if we run out, we will order more. Encourage you to get one. We got a long ways to go before we finish Genesis, so you so would still have an opportunity. These are only $5. Uh, bring your journals with you. Bring your Bibles with you. Uh, if you are online and you don't have a journal, swing by the church anytime. We'd love to get you a journal as well. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep the Bible under your seat as a gift from us. If you're online and you don't own a Bible, come by the church. We would love to give you a Bible as well. Uh, just uh, love for you to have that in front of you, participate in the word. A little bit of context before I read this passage. Noah and his family have just spent over a year, uh, the estimates are a year and 10 days on the ark. Think about that for just a minute. A year and 10 days on a boat with your immediate family. Some of you are already starting to get a twitch. And a few stinky animals. A year. That was what I was struck with the most. Wayne did an awesome job last week, but when he was talking about waiting on God, waiting on God, I'm like, dude, after a year, I'd have busted down that door. I don't know that I would, but he waited. He waited for God to give him permission to leave. I, I was talking about this with Megan. I said, just think about how crazy we went when the pandemic hit and we had to stay in our house. Some of you, some of you really went crazy. 
And then I said, well, imagine if you had to stay in the church building, just you and your immediate family and some stinky animals for a year and you couldn't go outside. Yeah, just, yeah woo is right. Like, I, I think sometimes we read the story and we're like, oh, that's nice. Noah, are good. Like, man, this is, anyway. A year. They'd spent a year. God's finally given him permission to leave the ark. They leave the ark. The first thing Noah does is he worships. It says that he made a sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord is pleased with the sacrifice. The Lord blesses Noah. The Lord blesses Noah's three sons, right? And then he, he makes a covenant with them, says, I will never again wipe out all humanity with a flood. He gives the, the rainbow as a symbol of that covenant. So, that brings us up to where we are right now. With all that in mind, we're going to read Genesis 9, 18 through 29. So why don't you stand with me as we read. Fair warning, I told you this is a bizarre story. All right, verse 18 says, The sons of Noah went out, went from the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth is dispersed. The whole earth is populated. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, meaning he was a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, second time we see that, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done, probably because his brothers told them, he said, and just for the record, this is the only recorded words of Noah in the Bible, Noah said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.'" He also said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, let the Canaans be his servants. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that your intent for the word of God is that it would do surgery in our souls, that it would be transformational. We pray every Sunday that we would leave this room, that we would leave this broadcast different because we have had an encounter with the living God, not because of something Doug said, not because of something uh, we sang, but because the Holy Spirit has moved through the words, through the song, through the conversations in the lobby, and uh, something has penetrated our hearts and landed in good soil. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak, that we would receive your word, that it would take deep roots, that it would bear fruit a hundredfold. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So verse 20 tells us that Noah becomes a farmer, and at least in the scriptures, one of the very first to develop the science of viticulture, which is the growing of grapes and the making of wine. Uh, it appears that he's also one of the first to discover the ramifications of drinking too much wine. Uh, I love that when you talk to people and they're like, well, the wine in the Old Testament wasn't, or in the Bible, wasn't really wine. It was just grape juice. I'm like, well, 
I'm not sure grape juice would have this effect on people, and over and over we see people drinking and doing stupid stuff, so I'm thinking it was really fermented wine. I think the passage is clear. So look at verse 21. It says, he drank of the wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. It's fascinating for me anyway, as I've studied this passage, as I've heard uh, countless sermons over the course of my church life on this sermon, but there's always a tendency, uh, not always, there's often a tendency for the commentator or the preacher to downplay Noah's sin, sometimes even to exonerate Noah as if it was just sort of an accidental, well, he didn't know. So he drank and he got drunk and he passed out, he, but he didn't know. But the, but the fact is, whenever we see drinking and nakedness together, it's just a, a, a depiction of sin. And the fact is, it's always sad and it's always very sobering when a godly person sins. And what I've sort of discovered in my own observation is that there's, there's two typical reactions when godly people sin. One is to just overlook it or to exonerate them or to just sort of downplay the sin, pretend like it didn't even happen. So that's one of the the ways we sometimes deal with a godly person that does an ungodly thing. Or the other one is to just vilify the person and to, to, to jump to the conclusion that everything they've ever done is just a sham. We see that with prominent spiritual leaders who have some kind of moral failure and suddenly everything they did for their entire life was nothing but a sham. Right, But the truth is, and the Bible is showing this, that, that godly people still at times sin. Noah sinned. But despite Noah's sin, he is still described in Genesis as the perfect person in his generation. Ezekiel says he's one of the most righteous men who ever lived. Hebrew has him as one of the heroes of our faith in spite of his sin. If you read the story of Adam and Eve taking the fruit, Cain slaying Abel, if you read the story of Noah getting drunk and laying naked in his tent, if you read the story of David sleeping with Bathsheba, if you read the story of the Israelites in their seemingly clueless to how they respond to God, maybe King Saul and all of his bumbling sort of ways. If you read those stories and you say to yourself, how could they do that? Then you don't know your own heart. Right? right? The, the point of the stories is to show us our own propensity towards sin. First Corinthians 10, there's, there's this, this uh, writing about sin and, and the part that we often quote is no temptation has seized you. You know that passage, like it's used like, like no, no temptation is so big that you can't overcome it. But you know what it says right before that? It says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Anyone who thinks they can do this on their own, anyone who thinks they are not susceptible to sin, take heed lest they fall. So Noah sins. And here's where the story takes a pretty bizarre, unexpected turn. Look at verse 22. It says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. The passage says, Ham saw. It sounds pretty innocent, as if he was just wandering by, looked over his shoulder, he saw Noah, 
but the, actually the word saw in the original Hebrew is this picture of actively searching. It's the same word that we've seen over and over already in Genesis when it says God saw his creation and it was good. God saw his people and it was good. When you see God, the, the picture of God seeing, of searching, of looking, that's the same word. This is, this is a, a picture of, of being very active, not passive. In the same way that commentators and preachers tend to make less of Noah's sin, they also tend to try to make more of Hamson to make it more heinous than the text intended. There are non-biblical rabbinical texts like the, that the rabbis wrote uh, just prior to and just after the time of Jesus that say that, that Ham molested his father. One of them actually says that Ham castrated his father. And, and what I want you to hear is that that is not in the scriptures. It's, it's not in there and it doesn't need to be in there for the point of this story. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that Ham is guilty of voyeurism. He's basically a peeping Tom, actively searching and looking to see the nakedness of another person. In this case, it was his own father. Voyeurism violates the person who's being spied upon, who's being viewed. It robs the person of dignity and their right to privacy. This act of voyeurism, it dishonors Noah. And to make it matters worse, there seems to be no remorse because he goes and he tells his brothers about it. He brags about it to his brothers. His brothers, Japheth and Seth, are very creative in the way they, they take the cloth and they back into the area and cover their father. Look at verse 24. It says, when Noah woke from his wine, could have said when he sobered up and knew what his youngest son had done, probably because his brothers told him, he said, again, only recorded words we have of Noah, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brother. The sin of Ham is passed down to one of his sons and his descendants, the Canaanites. Cursed be the descendant of Ham, the Canaanites. You got to ask the question, why didn't he curse Ham? Because God had already blessed the three sons. But Ham's sin removed the blessing on his son Cain. Okay. Cursed be Canaan, but look at verse 26 and 27. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Let the Canaanite be his servants and may the Lord enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The two older brothers who protected Noah's dignity are blessed. From these three brothers come the population of the earth. That's what the passage is telling you. These are the three that repopulate the earth. And the curse and the blessing of Noah becomes a prophetic telling of how human history and especially the story of the Israelites is going to unfold. Ham is the father of the Canaanites. Ham is the father of the Canaanites. Remember, Israel is on their way to take possession of the land occupied by the Canaanites, the land of 
Canaan. This is written to a people to help them understand their lineage, to help them understand their story, to help them understand who they are. So Ham, the father of the Canaanites. So we have his lineage. Then you have Shem, who becomes the father of the Messianic line. The Israelites, the Jews, are Shemites. Moses is writing to them to say, this is who you are. This is your story. This is what's going to happen. Remember when we studied the story of the Nephilim? And I was explaining that the, the whole purpose of that story being in Genesis is the giants are no match for God. Don't be afraid of the giants. What happens when they go into Canaan and they see the big people? They're like, oh, they're all giants and we're afraid and we can't go in. Bad things happen because they didn't hear this. The same is true. Look, you are about to take possession of Canaan. And it's God's blessing that you do so, helping them to understand the story that's going on. So the Jewish people are the Shemites, right? And the greatest of all Shemites of all time is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Interestingly enough, the descendants of Japheth, these are the Greeks. These are those in Mesopotamia and the Romans. But I want you to see this profound prophecy that happens in verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The descendants of Japheth become the first people group in mass to receive and accept the gospel. They become grafted in, right? They become adopted in. They don't replace the Shemites. They don't replace the Jewish people. They become grafted in and become a part of it. It is this beautiful messianic prophecy. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. You don't dwell in the tents unless you are part of the family. Now, very important when teaching this passage that there's a point of clarification. This is not, nor has it ever been, an endorsement of tribalism or racism. It does not give any people group permission to oppress or load over or enslave any other people. It is a passage that is describing the fallout of sin. It is a passage that describes the consequences of doing life your own way and not God's way. Even the Israelites, the Shemites, the Jewish people were subject to punishment when they didn't do things God's way. And in multiple cases, they were literally spit out of the promised land and enslaved by other people when they did things their own way and didn't follow God's way. This curse, this, this description of Moses is describing the consequences of sin, the, the ripple effect of sin on future generation. I think God gets the blame when we're the ones that made a mess, right? Someone, someone doesn't honor their, their spouse in a way that, that God would have them and their marriage implodes and then, and then God gets to blame. Why didn't my marriage work out? We, do, we don't take the time to like actually internalize our own behavior. We live a tumultuous, we live a, a, a life that doesn't really honor God and bad things happen to us and suddenly God gets to blame. This passage is describing the consequences of unrepentant sin. When you do things your own way, when you go outside of the boundaries, it will always create torment. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 50, 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire and equip yourself with burning torches, walk by the light of your own fire. Do things you, your own way. Go ahead. 
That's what the passage is saying. If you want to light your own fire and walk your own way, go for it. And the torches that you have kindled, this is what you'll have for my hand. You will lie down in torment. This passage is not about bloodline. It's about faith line. Hear what I just said. This passage, the passages in the Old Testament are not about bloodline. It's about faith. When you read the Old Testament instructions not to marry outside of the Jewish people, not to go to the Canaanite people, the Moabites, and marry them, it had nothing to do with bloodline. It had everything to do with faith. Listen, please listen. If you are single and you have a desire to be married, who you marry will have a profound impact on your walk with God. If you are single and you are dating, who you date will have a profound impact on your walk with God. As a matter of fact, who you invite into your inner circle, those people that you entrust your heart to and, and that you really call your, your deepest friendships, they will have a profound impact on your walk with God. The scriptures say, make no mistake, bad company corrupts good character. Who you align your heart with matters. This isn't a prohibition on having friends that don't know Jesus. You're, you're called to be salt. You're called to be light. It's about who you invite into, into your heart, into this, this inner circle of your relationship. So when we read in the scriptures the, the prohibition on marriage, it was to protect and preserve the faith. But when a person from even the Canaanites accepted Yahweh, they were no longer a forbidden people. Do you remember the story of Ruth? So Ruth is... Uh, uh, from a Moabite tribe, and it's the wrong tribe. There's passage of scriptures say that you're not allowed to marry these Moabites, right? And, and so very early on in the story, Ruth's uh, husband dies. She's hanging out with Naomi, who was her, basically her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law says, go home. Just go back to your people. Go be a good Moabite, find a Moabite husband, do your thing, go back. And, and in Ruth says to her, do not urge me to leave or return from following. From where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And here's the clinch. Your God, my God. Ruth, the forbidden Moabite, marries Boaz. Ruth and Boaz are King David's grandparents and part of the messianic line. It's never been about bloodline. It's about faith. Rahab the prostitute was a Canaanite. She's part of the messianic line. The point is our identity in God trumps every other identity marker. Let me say it again. Our identity in Christ trumps every other identity marker. So when Paul writes in the New Testament, there is no Greek, nor Jew, nor slave, nor free, no male, nor female. Guess what? It wasn't new theology. Our identity is based on our faith, not our bloodline. So the words of Noah in chapter 9, it becomes this framework for understanding human history. It gives a, a, a framework for even the conflict that exists in Gaza right now, right? Why, here's the deal. We should be praying for peace in Israel. 
But there will never be peace in Israel until Israel accepts the true Messiah. Until the Palestinians in mass accept the true Messiah. We're not going to have peace until Jesus reigns and rules. Matter of fact, Jesus said, there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars until I come back. It doesn't mean we should just say, oh, don't worry about it. It means we should pray for the people to find the true Messiah, Jesus. The story of Noah's Ark, it's... It's fascinating, but I want to ask you again, what's the most important truth for us to glean from the story of Noah and the Ark? I had this opportunity uh, over the last, most of the last three days to uh, go to the woods and sit in the woods. Uh, Jake and I, my son, went and we stay in a little cabin that has no electricity, no indoor plumbing, very rustic, um, spend most of our time sitting in the woods hunting. I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but that's what we're doing. But most of the time you're just sitting there. Uh, but it allows me this opportunity just to, to sit in God's nature and to pray. And, and I kept asking myself this question, God, like, what's the point? What do you have for us? What what is it that we, the church, need to learn from this story? And here's what I believe God said. He said, the story of Noah is all about humility. The story of Noah and the ark is a story of humility. It takes incredible humility to be the last family of faith in the world. Like, put that in perspective. The last family of faith in the world. That's what the scriptures say. No one else was walking with God other than Noah and his family amidst the billions of people. It takes incredible faith to spend 100 years building a boat because God told you to because it's going to flood and it hasn't even ever rained. But yet, he does it. It takes incredible humility to believe God and get on a boat and shut the door, and float around aimlessly, no navigation on the boat, just trusting God. Even Noah's sin is a reminder of our own depravity, our own need for Jesus. It, it ought to humble us. If Noah, what about me? It ought to keep us grounded. It ought to keep us dependent on Jesus. Here's what I was thinking about as I was sitting out there. You cannot walk faithfully with Jesus without humility. The minute you think you got this, the minute you think you can do this without him, you are standing on a precipice. You are in a dangerous, dangerous place. If you get up in the morning and you say to yourself, I'm just, I got too much to do, I'm too busy, I don't, I, I just, I don't have time to spend with Jesus, then you miss the point. You are utterly dependent on Jesus. And the minute you think you aren't, you are in a dangerous place. You know, no one ever came to faith without humility. Not shame, humility. An understanding that you've sinned. 
All of us have taken the forbidden fruit and eaten it. All of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And humility drives us to Jesus. But there's more as I was sitting there. I was thinking, like, you cannot have authentic biblical community without humility. It can't be done. Philippians 2 says, Don't, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility. Let me say it again. Do nothing, pretty all-inclusive. Do nothing, selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility consider others, also all-inclusive, better than yourself. Consider those who have a different political view than you as better than you. I haven't figured out the right words to describe it, but I have a palatable, fear's not the right word, concern for this church knowing that we have another election season coming. I watched how we devoured one another last time. The tension and the division that we experience as a church during election season is a stark indication of our lack of maturity and our understanding of what it means to be humble in Christ. Our identity is not our political alignment. Our identity is Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. You cannot have a healthy marriage without humility. Especially men. <laughs> you cannot have kingdom impact without humility. You cannot properly lead a company, your family, a ministry at grace without humility. You cannot preach a sermon without humility. Humility requires that you put on a towel and wash people's feet. Noah, the ark, Noah's sin, it's here to remind you that you cannot walk faithfully with God without humility. I think it's fascinating that the scriptures actually say, humble yourself and God will lift you up. Humble yourself, recognize your utter dependence on Jesus and give everything Keyword everything to him. The scripture is clear. Noah, Shem, you, me. We've all sinned. The wages of sin are death. Sin has a catastrophic effect, not just on our lives, but on the lives of the future generations. I think it's fascinating that the flood didn't wash away our propensity to sin. Noah sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It takes humility to recognize your need for Jesus. 
We're going to go to communion, and the scriptures say, before you take communion, a person ought to examine themselves. And the question I have for you is, what area of your life have you not surrendered to Jesus? Where are you doing it in your own way? And maybe for some of you, it's all of it. I haven't surrendered my life to Jesus at all, but for many of us, it's this or that. Or, and, I, and I just want to be as honest as I can be. If you're sitting there and thinking, nowhere, I've surrendered everything, I just want to encourage you that you might want to rethink that. <laughs> Where in your life are you doing it in your own strength? Where have you not surrendered to Jesus? So we're going to give you a few minutes. The band's going to play uh, just to give you a few minutes to think about it. If you haven't got the elements, feel free to come down and just grab uh, what you need. There's some uh, gluten-free elements down here if that's better for you. We'll take the elements together. The last thing I wrote when I was working on my sermon this morning uh, was an old hymn. I'm just going to read the words of the hymn. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I will live. All to Jesus I surrender. Savior, make me holy thine. Let me feel your Holy Spirit. Truly know that you are mine. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I will live. I surrender all. I surrender all. encourage you this morning if there's something that God brought to mind that you want to surrender I just want to invite you to come down and take communion with me down here we'll just stand together and take it together but if you know there's something God's saying please surrender this to me just come down here and stand with me
It's a fascinating thing that somehow we've made faith accepting Jesus as a getting a ticket punched and it's never what he wanted. He wanted to be the center of everything we do from being parents, friends, coworkers. He wants it all. The scriptures tell us that on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you take it, remember me. The scriptures tell us in the same way he took the cup. Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice. He said to his disciples in that upper room, this is my blood shed for you, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink it, remember me. The scriptures tell us after they had taken the meal that they sang together, I encourage you just to stay down here as we sing, but Rachel's going to lead us in a song. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, I pray throughout the week as we move through our activities that you would just whisper in that powerful, gentle way that you do, have you surrendered this to me? Whether that's being a parent or whatever it is, would you just continue to show us those areas of our lives that we've separated the secular and the spiritual us that that was never your intent. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to navigate the complications of politics, to be a church that stands together. Help us to be a church that is humble, that we would humble ourselves so that you would lift us up. those that prayed for you this morning this is what they heard if there's somebody who just needs some prayer for unity sounds like a sermon someone's dealing with anger someone's just feeling tired and if you 
are a football player, God is leading you to share your testimony. Okay. If any of that resonates with you, we'd love to pray for you. People down here trained to pray, physical, spiritual, whatever you need. God bless you. Come back next week for another crazy story, the Tower of Babel.